Welcome to the HR Uprising podcast. This podcast series explores HR hot topics and challenges through conversations with relevant experts and real-life HR learning and OD professionals. The HR Uprising is about learning through collaboration and evidence-based action. We want colleagues to have the confidence and skills to rise up through their organizations by delivering real, lasting business value. Now, introducing your host, chartered psychologist, experienced change agent, entrepreneur, speaker, and coach, Lucinda Carney. Hi there, it's Lucinda, just quickly jumping on to introduce this week's HR Uprising episode, all about diagnosing and influencing culture. And it made me reflect, actually, this is going to evolve as a topic because I believe organisational cultures are going to have to change further as we move this sort of hybrid way of working. I don't know how you're finding it, but we're starting to slightly introduce people back into the workplace. And this is bringing slightly different challenges from having everyone permanently remote. So when do you bring people in? How do we get that team working? It's a new set of, um, of differences. It's not about. It's not like it was before. Uh, it's not like it was during lockdown. So we've got this new sort of way of working. If that's something that you're interested in, you might be interested in taking a look at the webinar that I'm running in September, which is available on our website. I'll put links on this episode, um, which is all about managing a hybrid workforce, it would link also to culture because this whole episode is talking about how you might define culture um, and drive culture forward if you were going to plan a a sort of different culture and as is um, and to be in terms of culture. So uh, this also will be relevant if that is something that you're interested in. Now the content that I'm taking here is about culture and it's also a topic that comes up when we talk about culture change and how to be a change superhero. And I mentioned last week that we are kicking off our virtual change superhero training course in September. Don't forget if that's something you'd be interested in, it's going to be running a relatively small cohort of people over a succession um, of modules. So there's a great opportunity to get to know colleagues and peers and apply um, the learnings from the book to your situation and share with colleagues. So it's going to be hugely practical. Uh, And the great thing is I've got 50% off. It's got early bird booking until the end of August. So if that's something you fancy, take a look, go to the website, it's the easiest way to get there. Go to hruprising.com and take a look. The link should take you through and you'll be able to download the flyer, have a look at it um, and understand more about what's involved. We had a few flurries of bookings last week from when I announced it. So if it's something you would like to take part in, um, don't hang around, do go and take a look. In the meantime, I really hope you enjoy this week's episode on diagnosing and influencing culture. Hello and welcome to this week's HR Uprising podcast. My name's Lucinda Carney and I'm your host. And this week, the topic that we're going to cover is diagnosing and influencing culture. Quite a meaty one, as I'm sure you'll agree. And I know it's something that people are interested in because I recently hosted a webinar which we had 250 signups on that topic. So it's clearly something that many people um, want to know more about. I'm not going to say that I can cover everything there is to, to know about this topic, but I will definitely try to make it insightful and useful. I would like to thank an HR Uprising member, which is Mark Donovan, who sent me some content on this very specific topic as well. So I'm very grateful to him. So we'll get shortly into the episode. There's also a couple of other things I just wanted to mention. One thing is thanks to everybody who's supported my book launch, which is the book How to Be a Change Superhero. I am mentioning it here because the topic we're covering 
culture. There is a chapter, in fact, two chapters on this topic. So if you want to know more about it, or if you want to download some resources about culture, I'm going to talk about the cultural web, for example, on this podcast. You can access the resources there and download the toolkit. You can get that by going to www.changesuperhero.com and the toolkit's completely free. But also to let you know that if you could bear the sound of my voice any further, my book is now out on Audible. So on the week of recording, which is actually the 8th of July, the Audible version just came out. And if you have Audible credits, you can um, order it on your credits. And if you don't, you can get a free Audible membership. I've actually had Audible membership for years. I think it's a really useful alternative to podcasts if you like listening to things. Loads of good business books on there. And so you can also get it as part of those. And I wanted to say thank you to New HR Uprising members, Fiona George and Inga Studnick, who've both said they were going to get the Audible version this week. So I'm very grateful. Okay, so enough plugging and let's get on with the, the content in question. This whole concept of culture. So what I intend to cover on this is a little bit of an explanation about what we mean or what I mean when I'm talking about culture. I'm going to run through two cultural models and a third one, which is the cultural web, and talk about how we can use this knowledge to diagnose the culture in our own organisations and also to think if we're trying to change it in some way, then how we might need to take into account the style of the culture in our organisation to get the best results. We'll also then go on because this actually came as some feedback from the webinar. People wanted more step-by-step ways of changing culture. Now, I'm not sure that they are out there in a definitive way. If I find them, I'll do an entire podcast on it. But I will give you some thoughts on that in response to requests that I had on the webinar that I ran. So how would we define culture? Well, there are oodles of definitions of culture. I've got one here by Hofstede from 1994 where he refers to culture as being the collective programming of the mind, which distinguishes one group or category from another. And of course, that's true, isn't it? Because you don't have to be in an organisation to have a culture. It may be a nebulous concept, but fundamentally, it's the way we operate within an organisation, yes, but it could also be within a team, with a family, within a country, within a club, We're often very unaware of it. I think that's the main key with culture. And as a result, it's incredibly powerful. Now, I was listening to another podcast. I'm sure many of you might have come across it. It's the Eat, Work, Sleep, Repeat podcast by Bruce Daisley. I think it's excellent. And he had a lady on there who talks about this. I'll mention it more later. Frances, I remember her name. I'll come back to it. I'll remember it. But she was saying how she sees that strategy and culture should be interchangeable. They are almost... As well, they are as important as each other, and that is supported by the really well known uh, quote that many of you will have heard of the Peter Drucker quote, which is culture eats strategy for breakfast. Yet, we do find that people often focus in on the um, strategy, if you like. So, the senior leaders in an organization may all want to take part in this strategy, but they may not take responsibility for the culture. And the reality is, both are at least equally powerful, and some might say culture is more powerful. So culture needs to be everybody's responsibility. And it is something which, whether it's true that there is such a thing as an organisational culture, Dr Richard Clayden, he um, suggests that 
it, there's no such thing as an organizational culture. Instead, it's lots of team cultures or, or don't worry about the company culture. It's about team cultures, maybe individual groups. And if, I suppose the key here is if you have lots of groups that all build up to one overall culture, then you can see the culture of the organization. But equally, you could join an organization that has pockets of discultures or little individual cultures in different places. Now, going back to, oh, not going back to Edgar Schein, actually, Edgar Schein, I will mention a number of times later, but Edgar Schein is uh, a professor, an eminent professor who's devoted his life to support and to studying culture. He states that organisational culture is the key to organisational excellence and the function of leadership is the creation and management of culture. So it's something that's hugely important. It's something that's tricky <laughs> to diagnose and to explain. There's a other Charles Handy, I think, said, culture is how we do things around here. And that's the shortcut. It's something you go in and you experience and you recognise when you're in it. Um, but actually, we all have a level of behaving in, in terms of in groups, a certain culture. So I said I mentioned Shine. So Shine spelled S-C-H-E-I-N. He had a model called uh, the onion model, and he said that culture could be divided into three different levels. On the outside, it was things like artifacts and symbols, so things that are on the surface of the culture. He then said espoused values is the next level and basic underlying assumptions is the third. Now, I actually, um, if you go to our website and you want to see the webinar that I run on this, I have adapted this model to put in place leadership and behaviours between espoused values and basic underlying assumptions because actually there's a school of thought which say the way people behave definitely um, embodies culture and is the strongest influencer. Maybe what we're talking about here in the in the onion model is the way in which we recognise culture but the way we influence it is through the leadership and influences those behaviours of those people. But explaining them just to bring them to life, symbols and artefacts they are visible to the outside world as well as to the employee but they're really just the tip of the iceberg. They're things like logos, branding, corporate offices, job titles, hierarchies, uh, in some cases, even things like processes. If you wanted formal examples, if you went onto the company website, that's a symbol or an artifact, the branding, the way it looks. Uh, if they've got recognition schemes, those might be symbols of them being a high recognition organization. But there's also less formal examples that you might see, just the way people dress. I think about if you went into the city of London, you'd see many more people suited and booted with white shirts on. Or if you went to a tech company around Silicon Roundabout, I don't think you'd see a suit in sight. You might see a cord jacket or um, jumpers, jumpers and jeans type look. You know, the re reality is, though, that these are just symbols of what the culture is. And many organisations might think that by emulating those symbols and cultures of, of successful software firms, let's say the Silicon Valley types, where we've heard about beanbags and table tennis tables in the reception, you know, uh, it would be slightly naive as us to think that by just moving those symbols or artefacts into our own organisation, that suddenly we're going to be hip and creative and, you know, the next big tech Silicon Valley uh, giant. You know, it's something that they are the symbols of the culture. They're not the cause of the culture. And that is something that you sometimes see organisations fall into, that they think, oh, well, we'll go through a rebranding exercise at great expense, because uh, it's not cheap changing brands, especially the largest organisation you are. Um, making some sort of symbolic change like that, it's not the same as culture change. It's really just moving things around on the surface. 
So if we want to actually make a change, then we need to look deeper into an organisation. And Shine would define the next level as espoused values. So things like that might be the values that we put on a website, the values that we say people live to or um, declare to the outside world. They might be standards of behaviour and conduct, what's um, acceptable. It could be policies and they may be internal, they might be externally facing. You could have formal examples like, you know, you come here and we have a homeworking or a flexible working culture or values-based recruitment. Now, that's great, but you can, again, have espoused values. But if people aren't seen to live them, then they won't necessarily stand the test of time. In fact, they'll be used as that people will criticise. I've seen organisations where um, we, an organisation I worked for, the, there was a, a, an example called, they had a value called respect for people. And it was very, very well-meaning. But I have to say that was one, if a leader didn't act in a way which was deemed to be respect respectful, it certainly got a huge amount of criticism. So espoused values are great, but unless the behaviours of the leaders and managers within this organisation align with them, the cultural impact will actually be negative. So I guess if for this audience, I know we don't just have HR listeners here, but if you're in a people professional role, then making sure that any policies that are put in place are actually there to promote the right culture and they're brought to life in reality. You know, an example of something like valuing diversity, which is very topical, it's easy for us to pay lip service to something like this. The key is though then the commitment um, to us to actually making it work, actually making a difference. So is it about making sure that we've got equal representation? Or Netflix, I noticed in the media recently, saw that they've moved a serious amount of money into black-owned banks. So that's quite a big statement. And they've actually physically done the moving, as far as I know, which makes it much more credible. So it's not lip service. That's what we need to avoid. Then the deepest level of culture, according to Edgar Schein, is basic underlying assumptions. And those are more unconscious. So they're unconscious behaviours or beliefs. They're really deep rooted. Um, so the people in the organisation may not even realise they're there, but a new starter might notice it. I was thinking we had a, a new starter join our organisation re- re- recently, sorry, and they came in and I saw, oh, they've got a really different expectation around training and development. And their expectations, you know, we say, of course, we'll give you full support and training. And that means there'll be an individual who'll buddy with you, we'll give you information to be a self-starter, we'll give you activities that help you to learn on the job. So we'll give you the support, but they were expecting more formal. They'd always been in an organisation where you have a three-week induction programme. So it took them a little bit of of, of adjustment to realise that this is a a culture where you have to be self-sufficient. You need to hit the ground running. There is support there, but you have to take ownership and and request it. Now, that's interesting because one person, both of us are giving development, uh, their other company and our organisation, but not everybody um, is ready for that difference. And they notice that as a difference in the culture. It says something about each culture. Now, obviously, that's where, depending on the attitude of that self-starter, of which this person's doing brilliantly, this may or may not be a great fit for them. And it's an example of where actually, if you can, recruiting for attitudes and beliefs that fit with an organisation are really useful. But can't emphasise it enough. The importance is about making sure that there's a key people in the organisation and they don't have to have positional power. Those influencers, they're the ones that need to be 
gluing it all together. They need to be walking the talk because that's the best way in which we recognise the culture is the way in which people speak, act, uh, the way in which they said that leaders um, onboard, manage and even offboard people, that speaks way louder than anything we write on a wall in terms of values. So Shine's models talked about the way in which we recognise culture in an organisation and the fact that we need to change it if we want to change it from the inside out. So it's very much about leadership behaviours. There's another model which I think is useful that I also refer to in my book, which is um, called um, the Competing Values Framework by Cameron and Quinn. And they look at cultures in terms of the extent to which it is internally focused or externally focused. And there's different ways, and it's a lovely four box model as there are so many of them. And if I just explain the difference between them. So they've got a model or a, a type of culture where you might consider it to be all about collaboration. It's about doing things together. They call that the clan culture. The second one is more about creating. So they're talking about um, doing new things is what they're most interested in. So in this kind of culture, it's uh, they call it an adocracy culture. The third one is the market culture, which is compete, um, be the most competitive. And then the fourth one is control, um, which is the hierarchical culture. So the motivation is to control. And I'll go through each one in turn. Interestingly, when I did this on this webinar, um, I think 40% of people reported hierarchical culture and the others were pretty evenly split um, with a higher proportion than I expected of clan culture, um, which is about collaboration. People reporting that they had a clan culture. I assumed that, that I did think that that might have been smaller firms, but it was not the case. It was a real breadth of them. So have a think as I go through each of these and think which of these cultures is most like your organisation. Now, just like personality tools, it's a four box model. So the reality is, one answer is not going to be correct for your entire organisation. And as I said earlier, um, maybe there's no such thing as organisational culture. Maybe it's a bunch of other little cultures. And you might find that within one organisation, you have a range of these cultures. And I suppose the question there is whether or not the culture is right and aligns with the strategy. Is that what's what you really want? So let's look at them in turn. So the clan culture, where the motivation and the value here is about doing things together. Um, it may well be, uh, and this is why I thought it's often going to be a smaller organisation, because it would be quite common in a founder or clan leader. People might refer to it as having a family feel, which is often really popular and it's great and you know warm and friendly. You feel part of a family. Although there is a downside because like a family, there might be infighting, there might be bickering. So in addition to this value of doing things together, um, it is possible, maybe only if it is a smaller organisation, to be disproportionately affected by the personal values or behavioural style of the founder or family. So, for example, I, I know people who've gone into startups and tried to take over as a CEO of a startup of a family firm and not been able to make the change because their people wouldn't move on. They were always the outsider. So those are things you want to avoid. And actually, if you are working with an organisation that's behaving like that, the challenge has to be if that founder really wants to achieve that massive growth strategy, they've brought someone in at cost to deliver that, then they need to recognise that they're the problem and either change that behaviour or step away. So you'll sometimes see a founder going into um, more of a nominal role like the chairperson or something. 
So that's um, that's something where you might see it if, in terms of there. But obviously, if you've a larger organisation, you've managed to get that clan culture working, doing things together, being collaborative, being open, sharing information. Those are aspirational um, communications that you, you definitely want to see more of. So that's great. The second one I talked about, um, I mentioned here, is the uh, the adhocracy culture. And this is where the idea is really about um, creativity. It's about doing new things. These businesses are less internally focused. They're focusing on winning business through innovation and creativity. So to my mind, if you heard a business being referred to as being disruptive, uh, then that's probably an ad adhocracy style business or, or department. Um, so they are probably going to be winning business from more traditional businesses like hierarchical businesses, or they might even be creating new markets. They really value creativity and move quickly. So they would be talk to them, talk about themselves as being agile with speed to market. And in this situation, this is where you do need the management style to be more empowering. So I would expect in a clan culture that quite a lot of power still sits with the founders or um, the people at the top of the tree. Um, the leadership, whereas actually in a hadtocracy culture, easy for you to say, uh, it has to be something which is where people feel empowered to be able to make decisions in order to achieve this fast moving style and, and be competitive, then people need to be able to make decisions and make things happen. So you would expect power to be a bit more dispersed in this kind of culture, um, not necessarily sitting with those senior individuals. And you maybe find that the people with key technical skills are really valued. Now, in these cultures, if you're trying to adjust this or move this sort of culture forward, because um, you do have so many individual contributors who might quite frankly be brilliant, they also hold a lot of power. So as a change agent, what you need to be able to do is make sure they're all on board, which may mean you've got to talk to more people. The other challenge, I think, potentially with this culture is that there's a, an attraction to shiny new things. Um, so if any of you listen to my um, organisational culture podcast we'll put a link on the show notes if you haven't which talks about how to manage your large-scale change through um, using the cotter model one of the main challenges why people don't achieve change is because they don't follow through and that's often because they got distracted by the new shiny thing and so that would probably be a risk that we have to be aware of in this type of organization because sometimes they get distracted don't embed those new fantastic new processes end up reinventing the wheel so it can be a sign of a slightly immature culture as well. So adding some discipline, whether in the form of some sort of scorecards, making sure you've got really good implementers alongside you is the way to get stuff done culturally in this kind of organisation. The third um, type of culture is also externally facing. And Cameron and Quinn refer to this as the market culture. So this is all about being competitive. So the business would say that they are highly customer focused. But the reality is this is more of a means to an end. So the real value here is about winning or beating the competition. And there is a risk, I suppose, in this scenario that the employees themselves might feel as a bit of an afterthought. A market culture is focused on goals and results and they align themselves with the external marketplace. And if you want to make change in this culture, then it's all about aligning it with the company strategy. So I talked earlier about culture and strategy must be aligned. You need to do that to a large extent in all of these. But I suppose to get people on board, the people with the power in a market culture would tend to be sales and marketing because they're bringing the business, they know what the customers want, uh, and also people like finance who sign the bills. So that's there that slightly different um, stakeholders are going to have the power here. And having metrics for success would be key 
because any change or, or development in the culture needs to be directly connected with the external um, stakeholders. So you need to align it along there. And then finally, let's look at the hierarchical culture, which actually is one that most of us experienced. It's certainly the most common, although often criticised, it has its place. Um, a hierarchical culture is formal and structured. It's got more embedded and processes. Um, now, that can be great because if it's done well, then those processes are streamlining the organisation and they're making it more efficient and effective. But done badly, it's no room for flexibility or creativity and they are slow, very slow to change. It's trying to move an oil tanker. So that's their challenge really, is speed to adapt to change. They could get um, a, a competitor that's disruptive come and completely change the marketplace and they're unable to react effectively. They're also risk averse. So they can, you know, you do see many manufacturing and retail examples where they haven't adapted to change and, uh, and, and they're not there and therefore they fail. So it can be dangerous being purely this way. But the hierarchical businesses that do do well, they bake in innovation. Um, and they'll have things like um, uh, slim, lean manufacturing process and things like that in place that helps them. So if you are rolling out change or trying to adjust a, a, a hierarchical culture, the reality is you have to be prepared to go up the hierarchy. Uh, you, you have to go by the book. You've got to influence those people at the top of the tree. Sometimes people lower down will be fearful unless you can find a pocket of someone who's prepared to stand up and be counted. That said, I, I and sponsorship and things really important, I do suggest that people in hierarchical cultures, quite often those at the top, they come in and they, they're advocating change. They will say they want empowerment. Uh, and however, the, the history and the legacy of the organisation is that people who step out of line get slapped down. So if you want to try and be a change agent or influence something in that kind of organisation, you need to have the, the believers at the top, but you need to be brave and stand up and, and, and see if you can make a difference because many people can make a difference um, and it's often fear that holds people back. So it's not about changing in a negative way, it's maybe give it a go. The reality is if that, fit, if that culture doesn't fit for you, it's not the right time for you, then maybe you have to move somewhere else because actually we all have preferences probably for different cultures as to where we best fit. So have a think, which one of those do you think is closest to the culture that you work in? Maybe you recognise a couple of them. Um, I certainly do. And, and that would make sense. As we said, there, there might be certain pockets that operate in a certain way. So if we want to take this to the next step, and I want to actually think about how I'm going to try and uh, you know, create a culture change, the third and final model that I'm going to, to refer to on this podcast is the cultural web. Um, so this is attributed to Johnson, Scholes and Whittingham. And this identifies, it kind of brings the two together and, uh, and other power cultures as well. It talks about seven structures that an organisation has and allows you to think of them in terms of how, how they, I guess, how you, how you might be able to, well, where I like it is you can actually think about what they are and some of them you'll recognise already. And you can think about what your culture is in terms of as is and what it might be in terms of its to be. So the seven items are the organisational paradigm, which is the same as your uh, the initial one in terms of our onion model for the, the centre, the basic underlying assumptions. It would be very, very similar to that. You've then got the, uh, the organisational paradigm. You've then got 
things that basically, I suppose, display that paradigm. So we're talking about the structure of the organisation, so the hierarchy, where power sits. So that's power structures, organisational structures and control systems. That's all about power, isn't it? So those things show you the culture. And then we go further into things like symbols, which we've talked about, espoused symbols, stories and myths, rituals and routines. So the way in which people habitually work together. Stories and myths are past stories and events that continue to be shared internally and externally. So those are all indicators of the culture that you might be experiencing. So if you want to analyse your culture, you can think about these as a, an as-is and you can download a template from the Change Superhero Toolkit to actually do this and there's an example on here. So I'll run through an example quickly with you and you can download it yourself if you want to look at it in more detail. So I've taken an example of, of an organisation that I worked with or a, a, a stereotype of a, of a hierarchical organisation. So their organisational paradigm was that they were secure, trustworthy, high quality and research led. However, they were hierarchical, they were getting left behind the marketplace. So they decided what their to be would be is to be innovative, responsive and customer focused. So you see that they want to maybe be more market led. The structures were hierarchical and reporting into a parent company. Now that's like double hierarchy. And what they decided that they needed to do structurally, if they were going to be more agile, they needed to move to more matrix or team-based working, which are focused around market requirements. They had control systems, which would be boards of directors, non-executives, annual cycles of budgeting, headcount reviews, so very top-down control systems. To be, if they wanted to change, they needed to disseminate more decision-making and financial controls. Um, and they need to come up with business cases where resourcing would be bottom-up, not just top-down. Power structure, the CEO and the FD and the parent company, that's where the power lay largely. Uh, in terms of the to-be, it's more about individual empowerment. They wanted to have individual empowerment and accountability with local team leaders and managers having that power. Symbols, traditional brand and logo, parking spaces for top execs, corporate offices, business attire at work. You can recognise the place. Uh, the 2P instead was to move to more open plan buildings, dress down Fridays, hot desks, chill out zones and online collaboration tools. Rituals and routines. Uh, their as-is was annual business planning, board meetings, sales conferences, annual reports. Their 2B was team huddles, weekly one-to-ones, informative Skype or informal Skype chats and fish and chip Fridays. And then stories and myths, and this is actually a true one. Uh, the FD, anyone who knows me will know who, who I'm talking about. Um, the FD was once quoted as uh, he was looking out of the window and he said, oh, there's, there lies our greatest asset. And the person he was talking to sort of assumed he was going to see a team of people. Um, but actually, he was looking out at the company car fleet. So from the financial, <laughs> the FD valued the company car fleet above people. Um, and other things like, oh, board meetings always overrun. So it was perceived as being not very people focused. So any of the people stuff would drop off the agenda and always start with financials at the start of the board meetings. Whereas the 2B might be that reward and recognition was more linked to customer impact. You'd have suggestion schemes, bottom up, all these sort of things. So that would be an example of an as is and a 2B. Now, let's face it, that is a massive shift. If you want to try and do that, you've got to think quite deeply about how you might do it and where you start. 
Now there isn't a right place to start in these, but there is no doubt that if you start with the symbols, uh, you're gonna make little change. People aren't going to act differently. I think power, so much of this is about power. Those things definitely have to be considered. And Edgar Schein says that really, if you want to change things, there are, that the key is, again, it loops back to leadership. He says there are leadership embedding activities. So if you want to make a change to culture, you need to look at the primary leadership embedding activities, which are basically what leaders pay attention to, what they're measured on, what they control on a regular basis. You know, if they are asking about facts and figures on a monthly basis, about numbers, but they never ask anything about whether people have had one-to-ones, then they're promoting that financially driven um, culture. If all of a sudden they decide actually they want to understand whether people have been recognised, let's say they have a balanced scorecard which in includes people measures, then you'll start to get a culture feeling a bit more people-oriented. But fundamentally, it's the way in which leaders allocate resources, react to incidents, it's the way they behave, it's the way they recruit, select, promote people. Those are all the primary mechanisms which will make a difference to a culture change happening or otherwise. And if they carry on reacting in the old way, then you're not going to be effective in making that change. So as I said earlier, that's the content that I covered mainly in the webinar. And then people are asking, what other step-by-step -step approaches could you take if you wanted to enact culture change? And there's lots of things you can do, obviously, but these are a few ideas that I have had um, that I hope might be helpful. One of the things I think you could do is take this cultural web template and take a sample of people in the organisation and ask them about the as is. Ask them how they perceive the organisation. Then do the same exercise with the leadership team and identify if there are any disconnects. The other thing you can do is if you get the leadership team, let's say, to define the to be, does it align with the business strategy in terms of this? Think about how is what is the business strategy? Is that the to be? And think about how that might be communicated so that people truly understand the strategic link between new desired behaviours and um, and where you're trying to go as an organisation. Give people the why. And I've talked about that on previous on previous episodes. If you have defined a new way of acting, then uh, it would be it's, it is common often to bring in new values, but I would encourage those to be bottom up. So again, consultative, when people understand the why of where we're going, get those people to define those values and what the behaviours look like against those, and then put in place mechanisms that recognise people for behaving in the way of those new values. Incidentally, I heard a survey recently where people tend to uh, actually, uh, they don't tend to change all of their values if they do get the opportunity to. It's actually much more common for them. Uh, just, I got this from the podcast I talked about earlier. I'll put the link, a lady called Frances Frey. She was saying that something like 40% of values, even when reworked, tend to be kept by organisations. But occasionally, some of them have become distorted, or she uses this term, weaponized. So I'd be inclined to look at your values and see if any of the values need changing and then do it as, as a bottom-up approach. Make sure there is board commitment, senior management commitment to recognising new behaviours and most importantly, the, the culture there that they will call out each other if they're not behaving them. Because it, 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 this is the key, it's got to be safe enough to talk about behaviours and whether or not they're reflecting the culture that you want. And a way in which you can go the next step with that in hopefully a supportive way could be by defining a 360 feedback tool. And I'm talking about this from a development point of view, as opposed to any sort of appraisal point of view, where people get feedback on the level to which others perceive them demonstrating these new aspirational behaviours. So those are tools that I think you could use. 
in terms of trying to um, nudge your organization forwards, but it's about maybe moving to more of a bottom-up approach, but that only works if you are aligning this new aspirational culture with a logical strategic reason and everybody understands it, which actually closes us pretty much where we started is culture change or culture needs to be intrinsically linked or aligned with business strategy. And business leaders need to take just as much responsibility for their impact on culture as HR, (laughs) because actually they almost certainly influence it more. So I'll leave you with that food for thought. I hope you found that of interest. As ever, there'll be show notes and links because I've referred to a few other things throughout this show on hruprising.com. If you've enjoyed what we're talking about, found it useful, please recommend it to a colleague, join join our LinkedIn group. If you've got a moment to give me a review on iTunes or whichever source you listen to it on, I'd be hugely grateful um, because it just makes us more visible in the world of, you know, many, many podcasts out there. So uh, I've always said I'll only carry on doing this if it is adding value to people. So um, by all means, uh, if it is great, please tell me if you want me to do something different or a different topic, please tell me. Thanks so much for tuning in this week to the HR Uprising podcast. Thank you for listening to the HR Uprising podcast. You can access more information, including resources or links mentioned in the show at our website, www.hruprising.com. Also, you might want to join our LinkedIn community or tweet to us at HR Uprising. We'd love to hear from you.